Hey, good morning, church. It is Easter Sunday, and I am happy happy to be looking at and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is everything. This is the foundation on which our faith stands. The importance of the resurrection cannot be overstated, and the value uh, that the scripture places on this one historical and theological truth it can't be ignored. Now, I'm going to be teaching mostly from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, but what I wanted to do was actually read the entire chapter. And guys, it's a long one, uh, but I think I'm supposed to do this. I'm going to read nearly 60 verses, so buckle up, I guess, is the only warning that I have. But if you... Um, you can turn there. Now, on the sunrise service, which happened earlier today, I took a text that I've taught through before on a previous Easter. We looked at Matthew 28, verse 6, where the angel at the tomb says, Come and see. And the whole verse reads, He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And we are invited... Um, with the, the timid disciples on, on the first Easter morning to behold the glory of God at the empty tomb. And, and this, of course, is what we want to do. It's really one of the reasons we worship and seek the Lord and, and, and come to church and, and labor in prayers and sing the songs we sing. We want to behold the glory of the Lord. We, we say with Moses, show me your glory. And on Easter, we are celebrating resurrection uh, where we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Now, we're, we're going to continue looking. What we, we're going to continue what we started with the sunrise service. Um, we we want to continue responding to the angel's invitation at the tomb, where he says, come and see. We are here to behold God. And one way, perhaps the, the main way, where we today, Christians living today, see God is in his word by his spirit. In the book of 1 Samuel, back in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 21, we read that the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Um, now words, usually, you know how they work, words are heard or, or read perhaps, but God's word has a visual nature about it. And the, the, the whole verse from 1 Samuel 3, 21 actually says, Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. We come to the word of God in order to see God. He reveals himself to us. He makes himself known to us in his word. So we're really just going to look at a couple of things about the resurrection, what it has accomplished, um, what it has ha had victory over, sin, death, and hell. It's important what we are saved from. But first, I'm, I'm going to read you the long, long section of scripture. 1 Corinthians 15 is is over 50 verses, and no, I'm not going to teach through every single one, uh, but I am going to read every single one, because, uh, well, for one, we believe that this scripture is the Word of God, uh, but also, we believe that the Word of God is how God reveals Himself to us. And, and this is one of those passages where it would be difficult, of course, to do a, a sermon on every verse and, and pack it into one morning, um, but the Word of God speaks for itself, and, and His Word is clear. Um, and while, while the Gospel accounts invite us to see the tomb that Jesus was in, 
and the facts surrounding that miraculous event. It's in this chapter, it's in 1 Corinthians 15, where we see uh, these, these theological repercussions of that historical e event, where, where we see the effect that the resurrection has had not only on the disciples or on Jesus himself, but on heaven, on earth, and on hell. We, we see in 1 Corinthians 15 the, the far-reaching consequences of the resurrection. And, and we see this theological truth in its rightful place as a foundation on which all other elements of our faith rest. So, with that introduction, you can follow along in your own Bibles if you would like, or if you, if you listen better just by listening, then listen. 1 Corinthians 15 reads as follows. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, He was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, He was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not raise, rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. 
Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same kind, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of, a, of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. God. These are spiritual things that must be spiritually understood. We are flesh. We are but dust. 
we are corruptible and corrupted. But we follow after you, the better Adam. Jesus, we look to your resurrection in hope and confidence, knowing that our work is not in vain in the Lord. We thank you for your word and the power that it has to cleanse our minds, to lift our eyes to heaven, to change us into the image of the Son. Thank you for resurrection power. Amen. There's a lot in here. Um, I hope you can see that there's enough in this chapter for a lifetime of research and more than a lifetime of worship. I'm thankful that we're granted more than a lifetime to worship. I hope that you can see, without me making a sermon about it or trying to convince you, I hope you can see that faith in the resurrection is both essential and beautiful. I hope that you can see in just a simple reading, a quick or not so quick listen of this chapter, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is our hope, and without it, we are hopeless, or as Paul said, of all men, the most to be pitied, the most pitiable. This is a very hopeful, encouraging chapter. Its, it's, uh, its gaze is heavenward. The trajectory of this chapter is towards glory. But it is also very realistic when it comes to the tragedy that makes resurrection necessary. Death features strongly in this chapter. And death is, after all, the prerequisite for resurrection. This is kind of the main point that I'm going to try to hammer home, actually, is that the value we see in Resurrection Sunday and Easter and the worth of resurrection is directly tied to the death that has been defeated. Our salvation shows its power in what we are saved from, and therefore it is necessary for us in order to fully appreciate and glory in the, the, the power of God in resurrection, we have to look unflinchingly at what we are resurrected from, or what we are saved from. Resurrection is good news. There's no two ways about it. But resurrection is good news specifically for desperate, hopeless, and even dead people. It's not good news for the person who mostly has it together, who only needs a gentle nudge and some encouragement. Maybe a snack. You do not read of a moral therapeutic deism in 1 Corinthians 15, or anywhere else in Scripture for that matter. You do not read of a salvation that merely improves your life, or one that saves you from bad habits. What you read of in the Scripture is a salvation that saves humanity from the doom that is upon it, from ultimate evil, and from our greatest, and greatest enemies, from sin hell and, and death itself. When you read in verse 55, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? We realize that we're not celebrating a win over, you know, winter. So we, we don't do Easter just because we enjoy the springtime. You know, we're, we're not celebrating a win over an emotion or an idea that has some errors in it or something of that nature. It is sin, death, and hell that we are triumphing over. Now, this makes Easter 
a, a really different kind of celebration. There's not really any other holiday like it that I can think of in, in our church calendar. Now, Christmas, of course, is also a celebration of light invading darkness, but Christmas, the, the way it has come to be celebrated, it still makes some sort of sense in our earthy realm, because it, it is, after all, a birthday celebration. And we celebrate birthdays. Even if you're not Jesus, we still celebrate your birthday. Other holidays and three-day weekends mark important days when an important person was born, perhaps, or did something significant. Easter is not like that. When you celebrate a person's birthday, you are celebrating their life, and there's joy, and there's happiness, but it's not the kind of celebration where you wipe away your tears. That's not what birthdays are for. There's not... We don't, we don't celebrate birthdays and sigh with a great sense of relief for deliverance. A birthday might be a, a special day that stands out against all the other normal average days of the year, but Easter is a celebration of life that is set against death itself. There's a sharp contrast here with Easter. When we celebrate resurrection, there is a deep exhale. There is relief. It's a moment when we are reminded there is victory over something that could have and should have conquered me. Celebrating victory after a long war that you don't, uh, or sorry, celebrating a victory of a long war that you have lived through, that you experienced, that's different. That's got to be different than celebrating, you know, the victory of a historical war that you don't remember that hasn't affected your life. But make no mistake, Easter is a celebration of a victory, of a war, that you have found yourself in. Each one of us is living a life that is touched by sin and death. Life on this earth is threatened by death and hell. So Easter is a, is a, is a desperate kind of celebration. It's the kind of celebration of a person who makes it across a bridge just before it crumbles. The celebration of a person who is saved from falling to their death just in the nick of time. Now, I, I know that we should give thanks in all things. I believe in giving thanks in all things. The Bible says we should. But we know that we give thanks after the close calls in a different way. You know, when you leave... Uh, today or next time you go out of your house and you drive somewhere and you arrive safely without any trouble, you should thank God. I believe that. I think you should. Thank God. Thank God that you have a car that runs. But if you've been in a car accident, if your family has been in a car accident, and then you check and make sure everyone's okay and everyone is okay the thanks that you give God directly after you make sure that everyone's fine, that is a different kind of thanksgiving entirely. Do you celebrate because everyone is okay? Yes, but with tears. With, you celebrate with a quickly beating heart, with sweaty palms, with shortness of breath. You made it. You have been rescued. God has had mercy on your soul. A birthday celebration doesn't have that desperate tone about it, but Easter should.
Christmas doesn't have the same tone to it. St. Patrick's Day doesn't have that tone to it. When someone gives you a, a surprise party and they really get you, you know, you're you're brought from a sort of flatline normal day where you're just minding your own business into something else, something great. Easter is not set in a normal day. We call it the darkest day in history. Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection Sunday is set against the darkest of tragedies. It's still a surprise party in the best of ways. Resurrection is not something we celebrate because it is a special kind of life. Resurrection is something we celebrate because without it, there is only certain death. In order to celebrate Resurrection Sunday well, we need to see what we gain, and we need to see what we could have lost. We need to see how desperate we are, and how great our need is for salvation in order to properly appreciate the gift that is given us in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Paul does a really good job, of course, of getting this point across in his letters. Uh, but since, since then, since Paul, perhaps no one has really come as close as Jonathan Edwards. He's, Jonathan Edwards is a Puritan pastor, uh, very influential in the Great Awakenings in um, what was then the colonies before the United States. But he, he's famous for his fire and brimstone sermon, one in particular, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it, it is unfortunate, I think, that this is the sermon that he's known for, since if you read, most of his sermons are of a completely different tone. They're very hopeful, they're very encouraging. Uh, but in that sermon, which brought revival to his church in Connecticut, in order to show our great need for salvation, he said this. Jonathan Edwards, he says, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to rend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell, and if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution, and your own care, and prudence, and best contrivance, and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Amen. Our need is great. Easter is a celebration of rescue, and we need to be rescued. From what? From sin. From death from hell. If you want a three-point sermon, you know by now that you won't get one here. Um, but this is this is as close as it gets, okay? This is as close as it gets from, from me for a three-point sermon. Unfortunately, the three points are sin, death, and hell. So next time you want a three-point sermon, maybe maybe take it back. But these, these are what the resurrection has defeated. These are the wins. These are what we have been saved from from. Your salvation is textured and multi-layers, and when you think it's good enough that you're saved from one, you see that you're saved from something else. And the resurrection has accomplished all of these things for us. We'll spend most of the time talking about the first of those three points, sin. Now, right at the beginning of the chapter that we read, we are given one of the most clear and concise definitions of the gospel, which begins in verse 3 like this. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
Christ died for our sins. That's five words. You can have it memorized. It's not a full verse, but I'll give you credit for a memory verse if you memorize these five words. This is the nutshell gospel, the boiled down essence. Christ died for our sins. And in, in verse 16 and 17, we're told in no uncertain terms that this is of the utmost importance. Uh, that resurrection following the death is of the utmost importance. He says, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. That idea of still being in your sins is the worst thing that Paul can think of to say. It is our sins that are being dealt with. Now, why is this important? Well, the short answer is given in verse 56. The sting of death is sin. The longer answer, I'd say the best long-form answer is in Romans. Read the whole book of Romans. We'll just read 16 chapters of Romans here. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to do that today. Maybe next week. But what? why the big deal with sin anyway? You have to admit that if you even talk about the world in terms of sin and righteousness, you are antiquated. You are not speaking in cutting-edge terms. These are not ideas that even exist in the public square any longer. Now, you look around, you're like, well, what replaced it? What do we talk about instead of sin? Just about anything. We're really good at excuses. Now, if you, if you look at things from a strictly materialistic worldview, where everything is matter and there is no spiritual reality, then we have no place to talk about sin. What you might call sin is really just a biological dysfunction. And the solution to these so-called sins then is a medication or a diet or something physical. Now, if you follow an evolutionary uh, philosophy to its logical conclusion, then sin is essentially anything that hinders the progress of a better human race, uh, which has all sorts of problems attached to it. I'm, I'm sure that you're familiar with Darwin's book, The Origin of the Species. Great stuff in there about finches. Um, but did you know that the subtitle of the book is Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life? Yikes. Not very politically correct of you, Mr. Darwin. Um, modern pop psychology has replaced sin effectively with anything that they perceive as a threat to self-esteem or anything that could repress one's true feelings and expressions thereof. Uh, the solution, then, to this quasi-sin is not repentance by any means, certainly not worshiping God, but love and acceptance of oneself. Idolatry li uh, literally becomes the medicine for the disease of idolatry. This has given birth to one of the cardinal virtues of the postmodern age, and that it's that of authenticity, so-called authenticity. The greatest evil today may be not being yourself, even if yourself is an enemy of God, rebelling against your maker, held on by nothing more than a spider's web. In secular humanism, people are seen as essentially good, which means that sin can be fixed by better education, better social conditioning, and help people out uh, of, of their mistakes because they would act out of their goodness, of their nature, if given enough opportunity. Funny how that just has not panned out yet. Others, people in the church, even say that they have a good, a good heart. Therefore, their sinful actions are just accidents. 
um, but really it takes a lot of cognitive dissonance to overcome in order to come to that conclusion. It's nonsense to consider someone as having a good heart and bad actions when Jesus says, you tell a tree by its fruit. What we see in scripture is a, is a completely different view of sin. It's one much more serious, uh, but it's also one that makes much more sense. The Shorter Catechism says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression against the law of God. Any want of conformity to or any transgression against the law of God. Sin is a pretty major theme in scripture, not to mention human history. We learn from Romans 3.23 that it's a universal problem. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5 verse 12 says plainly the same thing, all sinned, no exceptions. And these sins, as you know, having lived in a fallen world, take on many forms. But at the root, they're all the same. I read one pastor say it this way, he said, The first sin was the desire in the heart, the choosing of self-interest rather than God's interest, the preferring of self to God, the making of self the chief end rather than God. The overt act merely expressed the sin that had already been committed in the heart, which is what we saw last week in our study with Judas, who had betrayed Christ early on before the betrayal by a kiss in a garden. The sin nature that we inherit through Adam, which 1 Corinthians 15 talked about, isn't necessarily a desire to kill, to cheat, to steal. It's simply a desire to be God, to be in charge. The rest falls naturally because we're not good at being gods. Now you can read all the way back in Genesis that the result of this sin is separation from God. As sin, in its essence, is a de-godding of God, the consequence then is a separation in relationship between you and the Lord who loves you. And once again, this is our desperate, desperate situation. Of God, we read, in him was life, John 1 verse 4. In him was life, which means, apart from him, there can be none. And here's more good news. The sin that ruins your life has been defeated by resurrection life. When Paul talks about the struggle of sin in the book of Romans, he directly ties the victory over sin to the victory of Christ over the grave. The first half of Romans, several chapters, convinces any honest reader that they are the sinner that is the problem. We are sinners, and that is a problem. Everyone is included. Everyone is rightfully condemned. Don't let anyone say that Christianity isn't inclusive. We include all people in that one great big category of sinner. But then, at the halfway mark in Romans, in chapter 8, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who... Do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It says there's a new way to live, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And in, in Romans 8, verse 11, it says, But if the Spirit of Him who raises, who raised Christ... Sorry, I'm going to start over again. Getting a lot of words wrong. Romans 8, verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, he said there's different kinds of bodies. There's, there's, uh, there's physical bodies and spiritual bodies. This, in Romans 8, is talking about your spiritual body. It's talking about this life before death. 
The resurrected king is resurrecting me. The spiritual, uh, sorry, the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is now giving life, a, a spiritual life to be sure, a victory over sin to you in your mortal body. The body that you are living in right now is being empowered to defeat sin because Jesus rose from the dead. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is now giving life to your mortal bodies. Romans 8 continues on later. It says, The Spirit helps in our weaknesses, and we know that we are indeed weak. But this is the power of resurrection. Jesus defeats sin, and the Spirit that raises the dead is now defeating sin in the lives of saints. Now you... You know this truth from practice. Uh, you can know it from, from doctrine. Sin ruins your life. But what you must believe is that eventually, that ruin is permanent. James describes it best when he says, Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The resurrection defeats sin. But if sin goes unchecked, all of that sin leads to, to death. This is the bad news of the good news. We believe in resurrection. We celebrate resurrection. And, and we see that because the resurrection defeats sin, it also defeats all that sin leads to. It defeats death. Now, this is probably one of the more obvious implications of the resurrection. But this doesn't make, any, it doesn't make it any less fantastic or amazing. Resurrection is the dead coming to life. Death is defeated in Christ's resurrection. Once more, this is remarkably clear in this chapter that we read in 1 Corinthians. It's so clear that Paul lays down a taunt, a challenge. Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, please know this. He is not speaking about, you know, a metaphor of death, a smaller death of sin. It's... It, and its consequences while we live. He's not spiritualizing things at this point. He's not talking in metaphor. He says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Resurrection has effects in this life, but the greatest consequences of the resurrection are for after this life. Let's not sell our faith short. We're into long-term investing here in Christianity, delayed gratification all the way. We are in it for the long haul. And if you're not, if you're in it just for this life, Paul says that you're the most pitiful person alive. Now, I'm not saying that about you. I would never say that about you. But the Bible is saying that about you. If you are a Christian because of the benefits in this life only, you are pitiful. But here's the rest of the story. You don't have to be so nearsighted. And for, for all of us who have seen and suffered from the enemy known as death, take heart. Death loses. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the battle that conquered death itself. In the book of Revelation, uh, we read... Uh, in the very first chapter, Revelation 1, verse 18, Jesus is speaking to John, and he says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
And then at the end of the book, end of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 4, says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither sh shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Death is defeated because Jesus is alive. This is how Christians can live like no one has lived before, with an extreme, what, what appears to some as an extreme disregard for their own lives, safety, and well-being. We go to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel. We, we consider our lives as nothing. We we love the gospel and love the Lord even to the death. We, we live for the glory of God instead of self and, and for the causes of, of his gospel. Not even fearing those who can destroy the body. Because we only fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It's very clear in the Gospels. Jesus says that the worst your enemies can do is kill you, and that's really not that bad. Our response is actually supposed to be, is that the worst you've got? This is the fruit of the resurrection. Christ has delivered you from your sin and from death itself and from hell eternal. We don't celebrate Easter just because we like pastel colors in springtime. We celebrate it because without resurrection there is only death. And we, we get to begin enjoying the, re the, the results, the fruit of the resurrection now, of course. He is delivering you from this body of death now. And, and let's just go back to that first point of sin. Do, do you see how beautiful it is that you are delivered from sin? Don't you, don't you see how sin has tormented you thus far in your life? How it has hurt you? how sin has destroyed, what sin has taken from you. This should be your greatest joy, that resurrection has defeated this enemy. There are plenty of reasons to look forward to heaven. New bodies, yes please. New heavens, new earth. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16. Beautiful stuff. But this, this has to be one of the greatest things to look forward to. We look forward to heaven because in heaven there's no sin anymore. The struggles that you face, the body of death that we struggle against, all of this ends. Jesus wins in the end, which means you win in the end. Now let's talk about that end some more. Christ's victory in the resurrection assures us that his victory goes into eternity future. We read how when the resurrected Lord appears to John on Patmos, he declares himself to be the one who has the keys to hell. Paul issues his challenge, Oh, Hades, where is your victory? And the assumed answer is, There is no victory. Hell loses. The church has been founded on the confession that Jesus is the Christ and the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. This is the long-term victory of the resurrection. It begins by defeating sin, and the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead has been given to you in order to help you defeat the sin in your life, to, lit to literally put to death the sin in your life. And that is given to you because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that power. The sins you struggle with will bow before the risen Jesus. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And it's true that Christians die 
We don't skip that step, but as Paul says, death has lost its sting. So much so that Paul could say to the Philippians, it's better if I just go. He says, I want to be, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. That sounds great to me right now. It's better, but it's, it's needful for you if I stay. So I'll, I'll round out this year at least. And instead of death now, instead of being a path to the unknown or worse, to known and deserved horrors, death now becomes our avenue towards heaven. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, I will not fear thee, O death. Why should I? I know thou art no more able to destroy me, but thou art sent as a messenger to conduct me to the golden gate wherein I shall enter and see my Savior's unveiled face forever. Death has not only been defeated, death has been converted. Precious in the sight of the Lord of the death of his saints. Death What's called in 1 Corinthians 15, our final enemy, is now an avenue to glory because Jesus rose from the dead. Sin has been defeated. Death has been converted. And hell will, the gates of hell will not prevail. Hell has lost its victory. Because of the resurrection, there are daily souls being caught from a sure and certain destruction, the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is saving people from hell. It is freeing people from the fear of death. It is removing from us the grip that sin has on our hearts and minds. Now make no mistake, without this resurrection, none of this is true. Without this resurrection, we are lost, every one of us. We're, we are Camels trying to go through the eye of a sewing needle. It is impossible, but with God. The God who raises the dead, all things are possible. How do we live in light of these truths? Well, when we see our sin as it is, when we see sin for what it is and not an excuse, when we see our sin as an offense against a holy God, then the only solution is repentance and humility and placing faith in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. He took the punishment for our sins. We must believe that he is not only capable of doing this, but that he has indeed done it and declared it is finished. Go to the Lord who died for your sins and accept the trade, his righteousness for your wickedness. Then, when you see death for what it is, for what it is now, a stingless passageway to everlasting glory, you know what? You live differently. You live for the next life and not this one. You invest your life long term, keeping your treasures in heaven, storing up treasures in heaven, and not living as if the whole point of life was merely to stay alive. It's not. That's not the point. Your life is to be poured out. You live now for the glory of the resurrected King. And when you see that hell itself has lost its victory and has no hold on those who place their faith in Christ, then you live a life according to the book of Jude, Jude 1.23. It says, But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. This is the ministry that you and I have been called to. 
when we see that it is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that puts power in the statement, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, you will go on the offensive and storm the gates of the enemy. Now, once again, Easter, Easter is a strange holiday. Partly, like I've said before, because it is the celebration of people who have been plucked from certain destruction. We know what was at stake. But also, Easter is a strange holiday because more than perhaps any other holiday, Easter sends us out to live according to a miracle. According to something that without the power of God would be nonsense. The dead coming back to life? Yes. Live according to that miraculous, unfathomable truth. Live according to the resurrection. Live like you believe that sin, death, and hell are defeated by the God who was dead and is now alive. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the powers of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of you. We pray that we would live in light of these truths. We pray that we would have in our minds a clear image of, of just what it is that we have been saved from, and I pray that this would only serve to increase our joy in the gospel, our dedication to the gospel, and our hope for what is to come when we see death finally defeated once and for all completely. Jesus, we believe that you are the victor. We believe that you have conquered everything in need of being conquered. We submit our lives to you. We thank you that you are working resurrection power in us. Bless your church with these words, with these truths, for your glory. Amen.